I'm joined today on full casting crew. I had to remind myself, it's been a while. We've been on vacation for a few weeks. And in season two, as we know, I'm joined by people I love to talk about movies we love. <laughs> James. We are the world. James and I go back. I was trying to think when I met you. We're both from New Haven, Connecticut. Yep. I can tell you where it was. Oh, well, da- Daily Cafe. Okay, Daily Cafe. 100%. But, so the Daily Cafe was a very 90s New Haven, towny, Yaley cafe. You were the model barista before that was a thing. You didn't call yourself a barista right. in 1991 no, or two, did you? No, but I was, I did call myself a model. I had been, uh, <laughs> had uh, you been a male model? <laughs> I was actually thinking about this last night. Listeners, since it's an auditory medium, can't see this. But when I met you in New Haven in the late 80s, early 90s, you were, you were and are a uh, strikingly handsome man. Well, yes, of course. But, <laughs> but, but I would say that inside you never carried yourself like that. No, and I still don't. I, I, uh, even though I'm, I'm fully aware of this. <laughs> <laughs> so James, when I met James, if you looked at James on the exterior and you were at all like counterculture, you would think, oh God, here is a Litchfield, Fairfield County, yeah, lacrosse player, lacrosse playing bro. And let head me to, say, hold on, head to toe polo. <laughs> okay, head to toe polo, including. In your excellent apartment, which you had on Chapel Street, I believe, yeah. in downtown New Haven, all everything was polo. Your <laughs> towels. I remember that you had polo <laughs> towels. True or not true? Uh, probably true. No, no, no. You had polo towels, and they might have even had your initials on them. They, t- they certainly did not have my <laughs> initials on them. <laughs> yeah, well, I was, I was uh, overcompensating. For... A, oh, well, a sense of inferiority? A, yeah, a sense of inferiority and uh, self-loathing. Right. Okay. So that's another thing that we shared <laughs> at the time. We bonded. And for a number of years, James, man, we were close. We were like brothers. We did everything yeah. together in New Haven. We told each other everything. I think it's what you would call the good old bad old days. Yeah, they were good days. They were good days. They were. They were. <laughs> it was fun before it stopped being fun. Yes. And we also, we, fun. we rode that train well into it stopping being fun. Oh, yeah. And luckily, we both got off that train yes. long ago. And that's why we're here today, because if we hadn't gone off the train, James, you and I would not be sitting here. I doubt it. We'd probably be at that bar drinking uh, <laughs> Courant and tonics, <laughs> we'd looking, be- you know, pickling ourselves so, on, our, on our fourth or fifth wife. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we'd both be dead, but if we were alive, yes. Um, for viewer, for listeners not familiar with downtown New Haven, the cool, the happening scene in the early 90s was a place called Bar. Yeah, it's still the happening scene. Is it? Which I think will That's tell sad. you something about, about New Haven. Yeah. But it was a scene. It was the first, much like Daily Cafe was a harbinger of cafe culture to come. Bar was this kind of ahead of its time, pretty big, cavernous, very... Uh, how would you call the design? Cool, so, cool like clubby. exposed brick. Yeah, um, not not fancy, but had an attitude. Like James and I, I think both felt a sense of we have arrived when we got what were called bar cards. Which were <laughs> did we ever get those? Yes, I don't think I ever got one. Oh of those. yeah, you did. I don't think you had so. one. A bar card was a met, a metal, an actual piece of metal. Yeah. that had bar on it. Yeah. and if you had a bar card, you, well, could, you could get, get right in the line right? and get right yeah. in. And go up to, uh, James mentioned Courant and Tonics, because, of course, in the 90s, we thought we were so sophisticated by not just drinking gin and tonics. We were drinking Stoli Courant, which was yeah. current flavored Abs- No, gin. absolute. It was absolute. Oh, it was absolute. Absolute, yes. yeah. 
Of course, because Absolute was like the prep school. God, of vodka. we drank thousands. We drank a lot of those. And you know what? We had a martini phase too. Not to bore Oof. your listeners anymore, but uh, but there was the martini phase, which I think ended the night that guy picked me up by my neck. Oh, that's. <laughs> I came out of a of a blackout and yeah. I was hanging by uh, some person's arm. And Probably because you mouthed off. You know, I think actually I didn't. I don't. I think that that was. I think that I and I remember. I think you told me, hey, that was uh, that was not your fault. That guy just came in. Really? Well, I I'm, can't remember. I have that kind of face. You know, people like punchable, punchable. You know. <laughs> Wise and well, I think you also had sort of a very evolved sense of right and wrong, yeah. and I'm sure that if that guy was engaging in some behavior that you deemed wrong, you probably were not shy I liked, about. I like to think that that's what it was. Is yeah. I was I was helping somebody in distress. Be one anyway. <laughs> full price Frank was the name of the bartender who now actually owns bar. Just to go to show you, that's right. You know, we used to make fun of this guy because James and I were bar flies, literally. Yeah. I lived around the corner. He lived around the corner. We were there conservatively. And we didn't make fun of him. We just thought that because he was so, he seemed very upright, you know, in a place where everybody else was kind of falling down. Well, and also he wouldn't give us free drinks. He didn't give us that free That was really drink. the that's root right. of my problem. That, well, that's the full price prank. I had a highly so. developed sense of like, hey, if I'm here five nights a week, now, now I understand it. The reason why we weren't getting free drinks is that we were there five nights a week. Right. And we were an annoying presence probably. Right. Yes. So he also, he did not come into the Daily Cafe. So the Daily Cafe was a, uh, you know, a part of this uh, ecosystem in New right. Haven where- You probably got a lot of oh, free sure. goods and services through Absolutely. your position at Daily Cafe. Right. You could dispense free coffee. Yes. And treats. Yes. And then go somewhere else. It was, uh, Seth, Seth Reed said to me once, he said, this is the closest thing to socialism as we'll ever, <laughs> we'll ever get. And it, it really was that. We're here to discuss a movie that, James, you chose- yeah. And I was so happy to hear you choose it because much like the early 90s, Michael Mann's Thief, which came out in 1981, was a part of my life in that same era, that first jump into the Michael Mann world. I was so glad to revisit that world and to revisit this movie. So many of his films are on my ever my, my, yeah. my, my, my ever expanding top 10 list of 100 films that I cram into 10. Why why this movie for you, James? When did you first well, encounter you, it? It's it's funny that you ask that because I was thinking about, I, I never saw Thief in a theater. So sure. if you think back to the time, the movie comes out in the 80s, mm -hmm. early 80s. It's his first feature, first feature film. Yes. But I watched that movie in the 90s. It must have been on video. It was so on VHS. So this is, brings us back or to DVD. being at... <laughs> In New Haven, yes. where we would watch so many, you know, movies, movies yeah. go to the whatever it was, Tommy K's or uh, Blockbuster. I don't even know who else was. Well, I know Super Listener Ben is screaming the answer to this. There was a video store right on Chapel Street, actually pretty much below your apartment uh, that we used to go to, but I can't remember <laughs> the name of it. He re just remembered it the other day, but I, I still can't remember. What it, it wasn't was. Tommy K's. No, no, Tommy K's was out by Hamden. Yeah, that was out in Hamden. Anyway, so I think that that's where I watched it. And I probably took interest in that movie because I was a huge fan of Miami Vice. Sure. And so I thought, ah, Michael Mann, you know, I know that name. Let mm -hmm. me get this tape. And, and I watched it and it's a great movie. And there you have it. Okay. Thanks for coming in, James. Yeah. Um, I, good analysis. <laughs> so Thief, a lot of times gets compared to his magnum opus, Heat, which my wife just asked me. She's like, how have you not done Heat yet on the podcast? Because for 20 years, she has heard me talk about Heat, watch Heat over and over and over again. But Thief is really where the Michael Mann thing begins. And so many of 
the tropes and the things that he's famous for as a filmmaker are fully developed already in this movie. I think I think Thief is a better movie than Heat. I think Heat's a great movie. I really enjoy it, but it's a little long and uh, you know a little bit uh, unwieldy. I would say. I think you can you can see the essence of what it is that Michael Mann does in Thief, and I, I think he does a little bit better there. I, I you know to me they're just so they're different things. Even though like a lot of Heat is sort of thematically very similar to Thief, it's sort of like doing it again with a much larger cast, a much larger budget. And a much greater command of filmmaking um, and different a different story, a different setting. Thief, like many first films, is such a, a love letter and is based in his youth in Chicago. It's such a Chicago movie. Many of the actors in the film grew up in the same Chicago neighborhood as Michael Mann. And I think that, and I'm a crime fiction fan guy too and always have been. So for me, this movie ticks a lot of the boxes in the best crime fiction in that good guys, bad guys, very blurred, know each other. Much like in Heat, you know, sitting down, having those sit downs, which in Heat are a little bit more elevated and less violent at first than the ones that take place here, where the cops are basically the bad guys extorting Frank, played by James Caan, for a piece of the action for 10% of his end of the cut. I think the other problem with Heat is that they really had to struggle with Al Pacino. What are you talking about? <laughs> are you serious right now? Don't uh, think you're trying to bait huge, me. Not a huge Al Pacino fan. But listen, that's fine. You're not here to share my opinions, but I mean, I Al Pacino about, in Heat is, I mean, it's a pretty good, yeah. Al, I mean, pretty great Al Pacino I, performance. I read something recently um, uh, where they, they talked about Al Pacino and his over-the-top performance. Sure. And they, they said that the reason why he played it that way is because he was supposedly, a, you know, like a coke fiend. So he was like a coked-up cop. That's not true. Yeah, I didn't think so That's either. And there's nothing in the film to support that. But somebody wrote true. a rather large, long uh, oh, you essay mean somebody on wrote that. that. On, somebody wrote that on the internet? It's on the internet. So oh, there's something so to basically it. Basically, you figured, out, figured that that was true. Yeah. yeah, it's true. Well, look, we can digress into heat if you really want to. But I mean, I think that uh, let's keep the focus here to Thief because we don't have the time to get into all the ways that you're wrong right. about heat right now. <laughs> so let's get into it. Let's play a little clip from the film. It's a master criminal who wants out and he gets sucked back in. I mean, pretty much probably every major crime movie in the history of films always involves some variation on that theme. And this, in this film, James Caan, which I think actually, I would say is James Caan's greatest film role. Well, Sonny Corleone was... Well, Sonny Corleone is his most famous film role, and it's certainly an yeah. iconic forever film role, but in terms of what he gets to do in this movie, he gets to do a lot more than he usually is offered the opportunity to do in any other movies. Yeah, he does it well. He's terrific in this movie. He's I mean, really it's amazing. It is, I think it is a masterpiece, and I guess I'd have to look through to see what other movies he's done, but this is has got to be among the best. Hi, it's Jason with the quick interjection. You know, one of the funny things about James Caan's career is actually some of the movies he turned down. These were movies that he was offered starring roles in that proved to be successes for other actors. The French Connection, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Kramer vs. Kramer, Apocalypse Now, Blade Runner, Love Story, and Superman. About turning down Kramer vs. Kramer, Khan said, eh, with such middle-class bourgeois baloney, correct. Of Apocalypse Now, he turned it down because Coppola mentioned something about 16 weeks in the Philippine jungles. 
I think it turned out to be two years in the Philippine jungles. However, he would have been in Apocalypse Now. And about Superman, he said, I didn't want to wear the cape, which just goes to prove the old adage, not all heroes wear capes. Back to my conversation with James about Thief. The whole first, like, 11 to 14 minutes of the film is a heist. It's a jewel heist. And the first of many Michael Mann themes is represented in the first heist, which is extreme competence, extreme criminal competence, the discipline to throw away the cash and the bonds and all the other stuff that's in the safe he's cracking and go for the uncut diamonds, which he knows has the greatest value and the least traceability when he goes to visit his fence, which is the scene that we're going to take a look at right here. All right. What do you make it? It's a 59 D4 to VSI 1. You've got one and a half to three carats spread. 550,000 wholesale, I'll take 185,000. Take it myself. Fine. Have someone swing around tomorrow morning. Look, uh, these people want to meet you. What? They're stand-up guys. What do I want to meet? I want to meet people. I go to a fucking country club. Okay, okay. By the way, you want me to put some of your end out on the street? Barry will collect it. Down the breadth of three this afternoon. I'm not shitting here. You'll double your money in three months. My money goes in the bank. You put your money on the street. It's everything in here is relevant. There's no there's no waste in the movie. There's no dialogue that goes on too long. There's no scene that that lingers too long. There's there's no music, you know, you listen to the music in the background there and it's like it's terrific. It's that Chicago blues music. It's like to me, I, I really think this is a terrific movie where there's really no there's no waste. You know, it's incredibly economical. Also I think about a third of the movie is is wordless action which is incredibly impressive when you watch it just because nowadays everything is so specific and on the nose and laid out for you as the viewer. The heist scenes, which are a master class in editing and in visual communication. But even that scene we were just watching here, there's so many things going on other than, hey, he's meeting his fence in a diner and doing a diamond transaction, which then the fence gets whacked and James Caan doesn't get his money and he's got to go see another guy to try and track it down, which is where he meets Robert Prosky's character and a whole succession of things begin to go wrong for Frank because he violates his own code, which is such a Michael Mann thing, it, usually through attachment to a woman. Michael Mann gets a lot of justifiable, I think, criticism for not perhaps having the most highly developed female characters in his films. It's a masculine world. We're in the world of criminals and crime. Perhaps, fair enough, I think there's different characterizations in other movies that maybe came later in his career that might be a little different than that. But yeah, this is the world that he's interested in. Yeah, well, at least he has female characters, unlike, say, Martin Scorsese, who doesn't even cast women in his movies, right? Wow. So James came in today, prepare. He was like, he made a list. He's like, let me, how can I bait Jason? I don't think his treatment of women is, is that often. Uh, remember too, I mean, this is an old movie. So it's, um, well, when you're saying it's an old movie, you're saying that in 1981, there were different mores at work in the world. And so it's perhaps more understandable to have less developed female characters. Yeah. No, I'm not, I'm not trying to, to say that that's okay. Uh, there's some things that, that at least they're age appropriate. You know, if this movie were made today, you'd probably have like a, a 60 year old, uh, Matthew McConaughey <laughs> and like a, a 20 year old, you know, flavor of the, that's true. The month in Hollywood. 
Hollywood, and at least here you see two characters that are that are believable together. That's true. Just the way he's looking at Tuesday Weld uh, across the diner, and she's looking at him. When I think of Michael Mann, one of the things I think about is that visual communication, not through dialogue necessarily. I also think of like the sound design of his movies. The sound design of Heat, for example, there's even just in this scene in a diner, it's the it's the the stuff of the coffee cups and the the music playing, the Chicago blues, the there, there's so much thought, I guess, put into everything is what is what I'm saying. It's it's a, that that term auteur. We recently on the pod did seven and Michael Mann is a filmmaker that reminds me a lot of a David Fincher in terms of the attention to detail. Every frame is so composed. It's so beautiful. Like the beginning of the movie, this these shots of the car driving through these rain-soaked Chicago streets with the neon lights. I mean, it's just unbelievable. He brings a city and a location to life in a way very few filmmakers can. One of the great things about Heat, I think, is the way Los Angeles is represented and portrayed. And in this film, Chicago, it's so saturated in Chicago, yet it resists a lot of the cliches of a Chicago movie. I do think one of the one of the things about Michael Mann that that strikes me is is his relationship with music. And oh, yeah. I thought that you know the the song that really stands out in here is the Turning Point song with uh, Mighty Joe Young, which he's you know he's in the bar, he's mm-hmm. a little late to meet Tosi Weld, and they play that song and they play almost the whole song. Yeah, it's terrific. And then also Tangerine Dream, as as this movie opens with with the the music of Tangerine Dream and the the, the style of that music and and the way I, I guess what he does is he allows the music to enable his 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 shots mm-hmm. and and what you were talking about before where there's not a lot of dialogue. For instance, they have the heist scene at the beginning of this. You know, they they complete the heist, then they get into their cars, and then they show them changing t- into two or three different cars, mm-hmm. and you know, the garage. And there's no dialogue during that time, but you have the sound of the you know the weather in the background and the Tangerine Dream setting the ambiance of the of the film. And I mm-hmm. think that he does a really terrific job with that.
Here's a little clip of Michael Mann talking exactly about why he chose Tangerine Dream, which is one of those soundtrack choices that now it's it's an iconic soundtrack. It's sort of genre defining for for Michael Mann in a way, very similar to Heat, has an electronic score as well. But it's not the obvious choice when you're talking about a Chicago gritty crime movie. And in fact, he had some other things that he was contemplating first. Here's, here's him uh, in a recent panel talking about why he ended up going with the electronic score. My, my gut wanted me to use Chicago Blues because I loved it and listened to it live and, and, and some of the, in some of the uh, best circumstances possible, which was Muddy Waters local bar called Curly's Place on Madison Holman in 1962-1963. But the dilemma was that it would have the kind of a regional specificity. That's what the music would have brought, brought to it. And I had what I thought were important themes, and I thought they would emerge better with something abstract like electronic music. The Tangerine Dream's roots are in blues. So even though it was electronic, it's still 12-bar blues structure. So, you know, so that's why I went with it. But it's right down to the last minute. And also, I'm surprised Tangerine Dream never got sued by Pink Floyd for completely blatantly ripping off that song. What song? <laughs> Which song? The one they play over the end of the movie. The, the last, the, when he's, when James Conn is like blowing everything up and destroying his home and destroying yeah. his businesses. Do you think that's like what Pink Floyd song? It's like hmm. the jam part of Country Lamb. We'll play a little later. Yeah, okay. Or maybe Matt the Engineer will cut a little bit in now and tell me how I'm wrong. But I don't think I am. I think it's actually chord. I think the chords are the same okay. as the jam part of Country Billy Numb. Matt, oh. am I right? Am I wrong? You let me know. Hey, this is Matt, the engineer. So, Jason, they're not similar chord progressions, but what I think you might be hearing is with Tangerine Dream, they're using some major chords, but they're using suspended chords. And what suspended chords do is add tension and release. So they have a higher note that goes to a normal, if you will, a note within a chord. With the Pink Floyd stuff, that is minor chords, but they're descending. They're going lower. So it's chord, lower chord, lower chord. So maybe you're hearing similarities with those notes descending that's making you feel like they're the same progression. That's what I got. But Tangerine Dream does cite Pink Floyd as a big influence. So you have that. Anyway, back to you guys. It's interesting because, I, I mean, I, I love Pink Floyd and have listened to all of their music uh, a lot. and um, That never occurred to you. And never, uh, never made that connection, no. Mm. But I do think that, like, what, he's, what he says there in the clip about even though he loved Chicago and he loved the blues, and this is a, a film made in Chicago, if he, if he put that over and throughout the whole movie, it would be maybe too much. I, I don't know. And Tangerine Dream is perfect. You know, it's, it sets an amazing ambiance. And I think that that is a characteristic in his movies. I think it's one of the things that he does best is yeah. finding the right the right music uh, to have on at the right time in the in the movie. It's kind of amazing for a first time director to sort of have the juice to tell his producers like, no, no, I'm going with this German progressive electronic act. Uh, okay, Michael. To your point, that great scene in a bar. 
it has more power because that's kind of the only one of the few times we we certainly hear it sound up all the way. Yeah, it's a and perfect song. It's, for it's that. really great. This clip is representative of another incredible strength of Michael Mann's, which is choice of locations. I mean, it's insane. This is after Joe Gags is the fence that he's trying to sell the diamonds to. Joe Gags is killed because he owes money. And when he's killed, he has $185,000 of James Kahn's money on him. And so James Kahn goes up the ladder to try and collect from the next guy in the Chicago crime hierarchy who runs a metal plating company. I come here to discuss a piece of business with you. And what are you going to do? You're going to tell me fairy tales? Hey, who the fuck are you, Slick? Somebody knows you? What are you, crazy or what? I don't know you. I don't know some clown named Gags. Go ahead, go see what you got to do. Get out of here. Carl! Go ahead, get the fuck out of here. Hold it. All right, all right. Jesus Christ. Hold it. All right, do what he says. Do what he says. Lay down. Go ahead. Put your hands on your head. Spread your legs. Now. Hey, you, you goof, look at the wall. I am the last guy in the world that you want to fuck with. Three hours. I will call to set a meet. You will pay me my money, $185,000. The L train goes by? Yeah, Are you kidding they, me? Did they get somebody to, the like, fuck? say, all right, we got to time it. Then the truck starts to move forward, like... I, it's like it's got to be like Rocky. We just did Rocky, and in Rocky, after this great scene between Stallone and Burgess Meredith, another train goes by just as the the relationship is solidified. Uh, but that was a happy accident, according to the director. I, he didn't address this. I don't know. Um, it's insane. It's great. It's so good, man. Here's the thing I always think about both crime fiction and crime movies. A couple times in this, it's like, you did me wrong. I'm, I'm going to call you in three hours and we're going to set a meet. Like, do you really want to give the bad guy like three hours, three hours to figure out how to fuck you? Like, because yeah. that's what's going to happen. Yeah. There's a certain trust that sort of seems a little filmically, you know, probably put upon. I just don't know what happens in real life situations. Ah, well, we'll never know. Well, how do you, I don't know. <laughs> you could end up in some weird, you know criminal enterprise for all you know i love the scene in that in that scene when dennis farina and the other henchmen come running in is that is that dennis farina's first is that dennis farina that he's the the big tall guy used to be a cop in chicago correct and he he comes in there and and he's like just the look on the face i mean that's why i say like everything about this movie is um is believable so dennis farina at the time of the filming of this movie was an actual chicago detective thief is the first film appearance of dennis farina William Peterson, who would go on to star in the great Michael Mann. Who's William Peterson? Which we, char- which character is he? Oh, well, he has a quick cameo as a bartender in one shot. And of course, he would go on to star in Manhunter, an excellent yeah. Michael Mann film and precursor. That is a, that's another terrific Michael Mann film. That's yes. insane. That is an incredibly an good movie. insanely good movie. James yeah. Belushi, this is James Belushi's first film. Movie. Yeah, he's terrific in this. He's great. There was a brief window where James Belushi was fucking great. This, Salvador... Probably that's it. I that's feel, a pretty small window. The other sort of notable casting thing is the guy who plays Urizi, who's the cop, was actually a safe-cracking criminal who was cast as a police officer. <laughs> and 
in the scene where James Kahn is taking a trimming to use the Chicago verbiage. You're a real stand-up guy. You got a mouth. You can take a trimming. You could make things easy for everybody. But no, you got to be a goof. The other cop in the scene is actually the detective who arrested Urizi in real life. It's great. Does Michael Mann go out and, and try to make those connections? Like, oh, instead of a instead of a cop being cast as a cop, I'm going to cast a criminal as a cop. Like, is that something he does intentionally? He, he mentioned in the clip about the music that he sort of self-deprecatingly says, you know, I had themes that I thought the film was about, and I wanted to, I wanted to, I wanted the music to to not get in the way of that. I think the, the casting point, I think the reason to do that was that this is one of those films that's a little bit about the blurred line between the good guys and the bad guys. Certainly, though, when you watch a movie in 1981, let's remember, there's no internet. You can't really find that out. You're not going to know about that, really, before you go see the movie. It's just the performance. It's the performance, but it also, it, that guy is so sleazy. as He just, he looks like he's up to no good, and he embodies that in such a way that, you know, you're in a film where James Caan is, you're, you're rooting for James Caan even though he's the criminal, like James Conn is working for his living as a criminal. The cops are just trying to rip him off and take 10% for doing nothing. Yeah, it's probably also the only time that you're rooting for a car salesman to succeed. <laughs> Here are some James Belushi roles of note. So as we said, first film performance is this. He wasn't trading places. I don't remember him in that. I haven't seen that. In oh, probably. trading places. Of course. Yeah. He He's comes Harvey. in. He comes into the uh, into the the train car where Jamie Lee Curtis is. Isn't, oh. that, isn't that him? Hey, I'm King Kong. I'm the biggest, baddest boy in the jungle. Get lost, you maggot. Hey, who's that guy? The father or something? The man with one red shoe. Don't know it. Oh, well, that was Tom Steve Hanks. Martin. Steve Martin. Steve Martin? Really? <laughs> I thought that was Tom Hanks. <laughs> Wait a minute. I, yeah, you're right. Yeah. It is. <laughs> I'm thinking about the man with one red dress. Isn't that Steve Martin? There's something with Steve know. Martin in a red dress or something. Yeah. I don't know. I don't oh, know. this is a great James Belushi role. About Last Night, one of my favorite films. Another Chicago movie. Yeah, I don't know that movie. What? Yeah. Are you serious? Rob Lowe, so. Demi Moore? So. No. Oh, my God, James, you know this movie. About Last Night? Yeah, it sounds familiar. You, though, but. Okay, this is, this is an opportunity to get into something about yep. you that I think is important. The reason I know you know this movie, even though you don't remember it right now, beneath the, as I mentioned... Uh, Litchfield County. I keep saying Litchfield County. It's really Fairfield <laughs> County. That's where you're originally from. Like me. Yeah. See, we have two. We're, we're, I was born in New York City. It's really where I'm from. Okay. Well, we're both two sides of the same coin because we would both say we're from New Haven. That's where our formative life occurred. Yeah. Right. Now I would say yes. Now I say that because I'm from West Haven, which is a blue collar town in which I did not have a good experience as a child when my mom moved there when she got remarried. You were from Litchfield County. You were from the Gold Coast of Connecticut. You were no. you were raised with the silver spoon in your mouth. No. Yet, underneath that lax bro exterior, James, I know because I was there. Oh, my God. What a sap. What a romantic. What a sensitive guy. You know who James's favorite music of all time was?
Natalie Merchant and 10,000 Maniacs. Uh, I can't believe you went there. <laughs> no, it's great. This is part of what makes you you. Uh, I actually, I think one of the one of the times I got in touch with you recently was because I, I was astounded that 10,000 Maniacs was touring without Natalie Merchant. And I said to you, like, how? how well, it's like as the, a fan, you, you're not going to go see that. No, it's I mean, it would be what like going that? to see the Grateful Dead without Jerry. <laughs> it's just not wow. something I could do. You know, I thought I was a pretty expert troll. <laughs> For the listeners who weren't here prior to, James comes into my office, which is bedecked with a lot of Dead and Company framed posters. And he's like, you're really into Dead and Company? What's up with that? I mean, there's no Jerry. I said, well, have you seen the band? No. Have you listened to the band? No. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, that was his attempt to throw a little barb in my direction, which is appreciated. I like it. Natalie Merchant. And then also don't forget the Indigo Girls. I love this about you. You know, it's so funny. Uh, It was tortured romantic. It wasn't last Christmas, uh, but the Christmas before last, my wife gave me tickets to see the Indigo Girls. Did she go with you? Of course she did. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, the Indigo Girls, a few years ago, put out one of the greatest songs I have ever heard. They're phenomenal. And I'm going to find out what it is, and I'll play a little of it because I can't remember it right now. But I literally, I remember where I was when I heard it on the radio, and I was like, who is this? Stories, pieces of jewelry, snapshots of a revelry, a lullaby, a journey out west, full of secrets, I guess. Never since been addressed, a hurricane. I, you took a Another notable aspect of this film is the appearance of the great Willie Nelson. And I'm going to say this might be Willie's greatest film performance. Is it his only film performance? No. No, remember he did uh, Honeysuckle Rose. Oh, Honeysuckle Rose, sure. Yeah, Yeah. he's terrific in that. Willie plays Okla, who is James Caan's prison mentor. Here's a little uh, Willie Nelson. Such a fascinating scene between two men. We'll talk about why after. Thanks for coming on down so soon. I was coming anyway. How's it going? Me? <laughs> I'm doing terrific. Every day is a surprise. It, it is real fucking weird out there. <laughs> it is nothing like uh, we figured out. So what's to it, my man? Same old shit. Morris finally busted Red's Pruno operation. A lot of knifing's going on. Yeah, nope. Yeah, that and sex. You wouldn't believe the quality of people they're putting in here these days. Ten or fifteen years ago, they'd have dumped them in a funny farm somewhere. Rapists, child molesters, they put that shit right in here with the mainstream population. Used to be somebody like that, if they lasted five days, it'd be a world record. Perverse. How's the wife? The wife? There's nothing with the wife. I pulled the plug. What happened? Uh, I, uh, she doesn't know I'm putting down scores and uh, the rocket scientist that she is, she <laughs> figures out that I am having affairs with fancy ladies and anyway, it gets all screwy and twisted. What are you going to do? Well, I'm, 
Ought to put it back together. <laughs> Look, uh, I met this new chick, this Jessie. You're gonna marry her and have some kids? Yes. But uh, she does not know what I do. Uh, so what? Um, I mean, do I bullshit her along or what? Lie to no one. If there's somebody close to you, you're gonna run it with a lie. And if they're a stranger, who the fuck are they? You gotta lie to. Such an intimate scene yeah. between two men. What, yeah. what do you think is going on with the way they look at each other? Well, they were cellmates, so. <laughs> do, you, do you, I mean, 100% honestly, is that, do you think, because I get a little bit of that impression when I watch that scene too. I, I never, I never got that watching it, but watching it just now, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, it's the big house, man. That's, that's the way it goes. There is no a shame certain, in it, man. There's a certain emotional intimacy in the way they're looking at each other, which is the way lovers would look at each other. And partly it's because Willie Nelson is such an open and searching intellect represented in his eyes and the way he's looking at James Conn and the way he sees through James Conn, who shows his watch and his suit. How you doing? Hey, I'm Flash. I'm good. But Willie knows, Okla knows it's bullshit. Yeah. It's an amazing um, scene. And, and as the synthesizer comes in there, uh, that's amazing as well. I don't think you could you could have mm -hmm. that scene without that. That's an incredible scene. Uh, it's an incredible scene. It's also such a different scene between ex-cons talking to uh, one con, one ex-con talking to each other. It's not a it's not a tough guy scene. It's this real emotional scene, which I, I do think has an undertone of uh, lovers, but also has this father-son issue, which then gets played out in James Kahn's decision to go with Bob Prosky's offer to take down scores for him. And in that scene, when he makes his pitch, father-son comes up as well. Yeah, this is sort of the beginning of the unraveling for James Kahn and his, uh, you know, or for Frank's uh, life, right? You know, he goes to visit Okla and he thinks Okla's going to get out and that's going to be a part of the future. And then there he is. He says, well, you know, I'm not going to make it that long. Yeah. And then immediately after this scene, I think he's out to meet with uh, Robert Prosky and get his money. He is. Here's a little of that scene. You want to put down contract scores all over the country? Working directly for me? I am self-employed. I am doing fine. I don't deal with egos. I am Joe the boss of my own body. So what the fuck do I have to work for you for? Maybe you don't. I'll lay it out. You can be the judge. You don't look. You don't case. You don't do nothing. We point you to a score. When we say it's there, it's there. They're all laid out scores. And they worked up. <clears throat> Alarm system diagrams, blueprints, sometimes a front door key, sometimes the scores are in on it. Everybody's ripping off the insurance company. Work cars, jobs, tools. Whatever you need, you'd see me. I'd be your father. Money, guns, cars. I'd be your father from here on out. Why do guys like this kind of stuff in a movie? You know, I think it, uh, I think, it, it, well, I, th I thought a little bit about, uh, you know, the, why did this movie resonate with me when I was a young man? I think it's, you know, the kind of the tough independence, you know, mm -hmm. that, and that, that, like, that concept that James Conney can do it all by himself and the whole prison thing of, like, oh, you could just burn it down and walk away from it anytime. Mm -hmm. As an older man, I think it's, it's, I, what resonates more is, you know, having to go work for the man and, you know, like, oh, you want this, uh, you want this, this vision that you mm -hmm. have here? Um, well, you're going to have to come work for me and there's going to be some compromises there. Mm -hmm. And like you said, James Kahn, much like Neil McCauley in Heat, is presented as a ex-con who has an ex-con's prison mentality of 
lack of attachment, shark-like keep moving forward. And the tragedy really at the center of the film is that in pursuit of the life that you and I have now, where the greatest thrill in our lives is to just simply go home and see our family. Or be on a podcast. (laughs) Or be on this podcast. I mean, who wouldn't be thrilled? Uh, That's the life he wants. And in fact, he has that in his folded out montage that he has collage that he carries with him everywhere. In pursuit of that, he he violates the very thing that may have gotten him that. And in doing so, he he creates his own his own demise. Although in this film, unlike Thief, where in Thief, Neil Macaulay, spoiler alert, Neil Macaulay dies in pursuit of that of that life. But in this, he doesn't. He walks away. He walks down the street. We don't know what happens, but he definitely can he get back with Tuesday Weld? He sends her packing in a clip yeah, we'll play later. So. She's probably done yeah, with that. And done with, she's already had one bad experience. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. Every time I watch like these crime movies, I always think like, why do guys like this? I mean, for me, I like to think, and I have an overactive imagination. So for example, when I was coming back recently from our Christmas vacation and having to re-enter the country, I became convinced that my passport had been flagged. And again, I have not committed any criminal acts, right. <laughs> certainly in the last 16 years. But I, I have the ability to delude myself. And I read a lot of crime fiction. So I read a lot of stories of like... What were you smuggling in? Well, I, again, I wasn't smuggling anything. Right, but, right. But if but, you were smuggling well, something, I'm saying, what would it have been? No, but I'm saying who put something in? Like who's setting me up? Oh, you were being set up. You know what I'm course. saying? Yeah. Because I did. And then yeah, I mean, people think I'm crazy. But here I am in the airport, and they call my name over the loudspeaker, and they go through my luggage a second time. Yeah, well, we thought that would be funny if we. Chris, Chris, Chris asked me to do that. He said, "Call down to the border control." <laughs> I had jury duty once after blowing it off for multiple times to the point where you know they send you the letter right. that's like, "Hey, listen, you're on trial. Listen now. up, buddy. You know you're about to get arrested." Yeah. And so I go in and I do my thing, and I'm I'm sitting in the courtroom have this paranoid suspicion that things are going to go wrong. The system is going to swallow me up. I'm going to be made an example of. And I became convinced that, you know, they were going to come get me. You might think I'm crazy, but I'm they, sitting there. They, came they and call got my you. name. Jason Silo. It's happening. I go up. I'm like shaking. Right. And what it is, is they wanted me, wanted me to be the second alternate four person or whatever. It's hard to be me sometimes, James. I, I can't even imagine. You don't have that? You don't have a fear of police? Um, you wanted to be a cop for a brief time. In I did. Life in fact, in I, I took the, the New York City police exam. I remember that. I like remember it was that. yesterday. It's so weird. Yeah. You would have been good. You would have been an empathetic cop, which they probably need. Well, maybe. I might have been like Harvey Keitel in The Bad Lieutenant. No. Well, maybe at the time. Yeah. I think it probably would have gone that way first. So you took the exam. You didn't go to the academy. Well, I did not go to the academy, but I did take the exam. Is the exam a thing like where you you get in or you score a certain thing and you're allowed to then apply or how does it work? Yeah, I think at the time there was probably, a, there, there weren't as many spots as, as I might have liked. I remember is at Washington Irving High School over there on, you know, 18th Street and there was a line around the corner and I waited in the line and we went up, we took the exam. I think it was scheduled for like four hours. I, I you know, turned it in and they're like, are you sure you're done? And I said, yeah. And they said, Okay. You know, and and that was it. I never heard from him. Seriously? I never you didn't get results? Him. Never got results, no. That's no. So we- 
wait a minute, that that can't be. I mean, they must send you the results. Well, I, I was living in New Haven at the time, and mm-hmm. and you know, I never lived anywhere in New Haven more than a couple of months. So they probably <laughs> sent the results. That's not to, true. You had that you had that great apartment for quite a while. Well, they, on probably, Chapel Street. they probably sent it there, you know. And then so uh, what you're saying is, it's not so much that they didn't send it; it's that the lifestyle you were leading at the time probably caused you to miss the letter, which said something like, "Dear Mr. Kittle, thank you. We are proud to let you know that you don't even really need to go to the police academy. We'd like you to." come right in at the gold shield yeah, detective meet us, level. Right. <laughs> meet, us, meet us at Rikers. You know, we've got a room for you there. God, why did you want to be a cop? You know, I, I watched a lot of cop shows growing up and uh, they were always the good guys. Yeah, but I, I mean, be a good guy. did you think that you were going to wear Armani and pastel like Don in Miami Vice? <laughs> or you were like, what was your, because yes, I, I, I sometimes have this probably, again. Probably, I probably thought I would be like uh, like Crockett or, or Tubbs and, and, uh, and that would be the kind of cop that I was. My, my cop fantasy, which I still sometimes have, is to become a homicide detective. Yes. Like, like at, the, at 50, I'm yeah. going to become a homicide detective. Yeah. Which I don't want to do. I don't want to have the job consume me. I don't want to live any of the tropes that I read about in books all the time. But I always think like, kind of like in Seven, Morgan Freeman's sort of presentation of detachment and disengagement, yet the beating heart inside of him that is so connected to the humanity that he's forced to contend with every day. Yeah. That's what I always think about it. Um, you could have had a very different life if you'd got if you'd gotten your mail. Yeah, I think it probably would you have gone. Uh, yeah, I think I would have. I, th- I think I would have. I really wanted to be a police officer. You know, at the time, I th- I thought that seemed like a, a great idea. I'm sh- sure it would have been a very different life. Instead, I went to NYU. Did you graduate from NYU? I did. Good for you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Why didn't you become a cop in New Haven? That would have probably been an easier track. I don't think that I, I think at the time I, I knew people you had a that record. were. No, <laughs> I never had a record. <laughs> yeah, I, you knew a lot of cops again I from did. the Daily Cafe. Sure, from the Daily in. Cafe. I knew, I knew a bunch of police officers. Would you give free coffee? In. Yes, of course. That's against the law. Um, no, I don't think actually it was against the law. In fact, I think they, we probably had a policy of giving free coffee to the New Haven Police Department. Oh, I'm sure you did. But, yeah. I, but I'm saying that if you look at the letter of the law, I can't imagine that police officers are allowed to accept. Yeah, it was the 90s. You know, yeah, things, were, things were much more loose back then. God. It was the height of the crack epidemic. So, yeah. you know, we just, we just wanted them to come in. And sure, uh, cops drank for free. Pretty much everybody drank for free at the Daily Cafe. <laughs> That's true. One time <laughs> or another. No wonder it was a difficult business <laughs> for Steve to maintain. So you didn't think about becoming a New Haven cop because you were kind of ready to get out of New Haven? It was sort of like a... Yeah, a, I mean, honestly, I don't think that they were taking applications at the time. Uh, okay. Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, the, the, it's not as easy to become a police officer as you might think. I mean, mm-hmm. you have to, there, there has, has to be the openings and then you have to take the test and pass the test and then apparently get your mail. Which for, for a lot of your listeners probably don't know, but they used to send things <laughs> through this thing called the post office. Huh, how did it work? They would bring like a piece of paper and put it into a, a part of your home mm-hmm. called your mailbox. Called your mailbox, yes. yes and, then, and, and, then, and then you would open it and read it and it would have information that you needed. And if you were, was your life messy enough at the time that you were applying that you, like you wouldn't get your bills or your mail or stuff like that? I mean, I, I think of you as like at least residing in the same place yeah, all the time. It wasn't but. messy, but I think that I think I probably did move, and um, you know, I don't, I don't know. Uh-huh. I, I never heard from him though. Interesting. So I'm fairly certain I passed the test. I just never heard back from them, and and then you know, it might also have been that that I got into NYU. So maybe I had two plans. It might have been that the police department was my my second plan, and NYU was my first plan. It was either become a violet or a cop. Yeah, and you chose violet. Yes, which I believe you were on the NYU hockey team. Yes, I was the uh, the all time leading scorer. 
That's not true. It is true. I was You're the all-time leading scorer of the NYU hockey team? Well, not not anymore, but as a freshman, I was the leading scorer. Wow. Yeah. Wait a minute. You can look it up. You're telling me that after our debauched life in New Haven, you then went to NYU and were a good enough— I I certainly don't remember you playing hockey any of the four or five years (laughs) that we were reprobating. I played all the time. I used to play—you know where I used to play all the time was on uh, my rollerblades. I would go to Beinecke, Beinecke Plaza. Uh, Yeah, but you would just hit a tennis ball against a wall. No. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's more or less. Um, in fact, there was there was this is a true story. One time I was out there, you know, you're not allowed out there. It's like a marble plaza. Sure. And I was out there. It was late at night. I used to go out there at night and I was I was skating around and a Yale police officer came by and I was like, oh, I, I, I'll, I'll go now. And he's like, no, no, you, you could keep playing. Uh, he's like, my son plays hockey. Do you think you got any pointers for him? Oh, and I was, <laughs> I was like, well, you know, bend your knees or something. I don't know. <laughs> And, and that was it. So from then on, I, I could always skate there at Beinecke. Wow. Maybe I was asleep when you were playing hockey in New Haven. Well, no, you we... had to work the next day. Yeah, I guess I did. I was, I on, the, I was on the night shift. You were on a night you know? shift. Night shift. Yeah. So you would get off work and go skate at Beinecke for a few hours and then sleep till two or three and get up and then go back to the cafe. Yeah, sometimes. Wow. <laughs> That's impressive, James. Yeah, we liked we liked to. Uh, well, rollerblades were just coming out then, so we used to go. Uh, those uh, the guys from Hell House, they all had mm-hmm. uh, rollerblades, and we we would go all around the city, and it was it was a lot it was of fun. So nineties, yeah. Townies being townies in New Haven at the time was amazing uh, because, unlike now. You you had free. You could go anywhere. You could go into the library. You could go into the dining yeah. commons. You could go into the catacombs underneath Yale University. You could go up into every residential tower. You might liberate a few items from some Yale. A, a monkey picture here or there. A monkey picture here or there. He knows who he is. He probably doesn't listen to the pod. But Dave, you should really return that picture, or at least lend it to me for a few years. <laughs> It's funny. I bet that is all changed now. I when oh, yeah. I even when I was at NYU, I used to go to the uh, cross campus library and study with with friends of mine that were yeah. you know students at Yale, and I would I would go and I spent for for one year that I was at NYU, I probably spent more time in the Yale libraries than than the the NYU library. You know, it's funny when I went to college at Hampshire the first year, I think I came back to New Haven every weekend uh, and did not really spend much time other than my class time and week weekday time. There's a thing about being into New Haven at that time, which I think we both were. It was a great place to be. Man. <laughs> it was a great it, place it to be. It was just fantastic. I mean, I think one of the things that was different in the 80s was that unlike probably where most people listening went to high school, your high school scene is probably revolves around your high school in New Haven. You had a scene that revolved around a kind of an innumerable number of high schools from the surrounding area and certainly from New Haven itself. Yeah. I, one of the things that I always thought was so funny about being in New Haven is um, is that people people always assumed that I went to Yale, and of course I didn't. Mm-hmm. So people would people that did go to Yale would find out I didn't go to Yale, and they were like, "Well, you're not good enough to hang out with us." Yeah, you were that guy. And then the people that were from New Haven were like, "Oh, we don't want to hang out with him. He goes to Yale, you know." Yeah, he wants to be a cop. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> fucking so, narc. Yeah, so it's a good thing I worked at the coffee house. <laughs> Nobody ever would have even talked to me otherwise. I'm going to play another clip here, James. What is this? Is this a? Oh, oh, that's right, the movie. Yeah, the movie. I forgot that's what we were talking about. We have to cover a lot of ground, and then yeah. you're going to listen no, back. No, it's going to be a it. seamless one fifteen. You'll see. Okay. I want to give Tuesday Weld some of her due here because, in her handful of scenes, I just think she brings a certain brittle fragility to the role that is fantastic, and there's a lot of depth to her performance in the movie. Her twice bittenness. She tells a story in this diner scene about 
her previous boyfriend who was a cocaine dealer. Yeah, on the streets of Bogota. Yes. Things did happen. Things did happen. But She's this terrific. Is, this is one of the more quotable scenes that my friend Buck and I used to always quote back and forth to each other when James Conn- You used had, to watch this with Buck? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Thief was a huge- That's awesome. Of one of those movies because of the quotability. And I think this scene in the car- between James Conn and Tuesday Weld, where he kind of finally asks her, what the hell does you, do you think I do for a living? Yeah. Some very funny, quotable moments. What the hell do you think that I do? Come on, come on. Come on, every morning I walk in for five months, say hi. What the hell do you think that I do? You sell little fucking cars, that's what you do. I wear $150 slacks, I wear silk shirts, I wear $800 suits. I wear a gold watch. I wear a perfect D, flawless, three-carat ring. I change cars like other guys change their fucking shoes. I'm a thief. I've been in prison, all right? So what? I don't care. So what? Don't tell me. So what? I never even told my wife that. I don't care. Who is now gone? Did I ever come on to you? No. What'd you see? See? See what? See, I, I am a straight arrow. I am a true blue kind of a guy. I've been cool. I am now unmarried. So let's cut the mini moves and the bullshit and get on with this big romance. What? I don't believe it. Do you think that I have been waiting for you to come along? What is this shit? Then there's maybe a 17-minute scene between just the two of them in a diner above a highway. That's incredible. I mean, if you don't watch anything... Just watch this section of this movie. It's an incredible scene in which so much of the heavy lifting of the backstory of both of these characters gets brought out. James Conn bears his soul, and they come together. So I'm just asking you to be with me. I can't. I can't. Uh, I can't have children. I don't fit into this. Well, we adopt. I, I am not ready. See, and and I have my life, so I, I can't. What? I mean, what? What is going on in your life that is so terrific? Mine's been a mess. <laughs> so I was just, I was just thinking, you know that. Just maybe between the two of us, that we could make something, something happen, something special, something really nice, you know. So I'm just, uh, I'm just asking you uh, to uh... look. And I got a way now that I, I can make it happen faster. I mean, much, much faster. And uh, I'm just, I'm just asking you. Music there, so good to it's your point. Amazing. It's ominous, it's, yeah. right? Because something ominous is happening. He's yeah. making a fateful error. Yeah. But there is love. You think he's making an error there? 
He's making an error in terms of the code that he has lived by to that point yeah, in his life. Yeah, but he wants the picture. He wants, he wants the picture. He wants her. He does want her. I think he does. I think that's genuine. Yeah. I think that their thing is genuine. But, James, let's play as a dad. This is not the guy you want your daughter to say, hey, I'm going to take another swing of the apple here. You know, we see him as a good person. You know, he's, he does have a code that he lives by. And sure, you know, he's, he's stealing diamonds. But he, he'd see that he says even uh, to Robert Prosky there, like, he won't do home invasions or sure. cowboy stuff. or um, So, I, you know, I, I think he's, he's, he's a got fundamentally morals. a good person. Sure. Yeah. God, she's so good in this. I mean, it's the, the, the little collage that he's unfolding comes from Michael Mann's prison research, where at the time he would visit, I think, San Quentin, and he would see Khan's cells frequently had these collages, usually of pornography, but sometimes there were these dream lives that were going to happen for these guys when they could get out. We used to do that at boarding school, too. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to know what was on your boarding school collage, James. Hockey. <laughs> Girl in bikini. Yeah. Pretty much? Well, Beer. Yeah, probably. Beer. You know, sure. You're, you're kind of like a you Brett know. Kavanaugh. <laughs> <laughs> Brett and I go way back. Sure. Well, I mean, I could go on. There's so many things to talk about here. We haven't talked, we haven't played Eurizi. We haven't played Sam, the metallurgist who makes the fire rod. We haven't really gotten into Robert Prosky and how amazing he is. Yeah. Just to talk a little bit about Prosky, Michael Mann says that, you know, that was the hardest role for him to cast. And that I think he had worked with Jerry Bruckheimer, who was his producer on this film. Is that right? I didn't even know that. Yeah. Well, and it must have been one of his early productions. It was one right? of his early productions. It's actually a Jerry Bruckheimer, Ronnie Kahn production. Okay. James Kahn's brother, Ronnie, is one of the producers. I think he'd seen 60 or 70 actors to play the role that Bob Prosky plays, and nobody had the right thing. And he said to Bruckheimer, is it me? Am I, am I missing something? Am I looking for something wrong? And Bruckheimer said, no, just, he hasn't walked in the room yet. Just keep going. And sure enough, Robert Prosky came in, and he's one of the guys whose first film role this is. Is that a lot of people to, to look at for casting, 60 people, or is it? I think it depends. I mean, I think Spielberg yeah. famously considered something like 10,000 people before he cast Maria in the forthcoming West Side Story. But anyway, Bob Prosky was a stage actor and came in, and man said, had that exact. He was a stage actor? Yeah. Yeah. And he had that combination of avuncular dad with menace undercut. And yeah. even when Bob Prosky is being friendly, there's such brilliant scenes. The scene between him and James Conn in the bar when the adoption agency has gone wrong because Tuesday Weld can't have children. So they go to an adoption agency. Of course, they're turned away because he's an ex-con. After that, Prosky sees him in a bar and says, Are you trying to adopt a kid? How do you know that? Barry mentioned to Mitch, Mitch to me. You got friends. Lighten up, for Christ's sake. Why don't you come to me with your problems? What am I, a fucking stranger? I take care of my people. Anything you want. You and me, we do business. I do not mix apples and oranges. Yeah, bullshit. Bullshit. Yeah. With my wife, with my kids. That's my whole life. We are very tight. Kids are special, a miracle. What happens? You state your model. Black, brown, yellow, and white. Boy or girl. Where from? Couple of ladies. They got babies to sell. 
They're wrong. They sell them. It's not that kid's fault that his mother's an asshole. And you're not buying the mother. You're not going to get a kid on the street. I want a boy. Done. Hmm? Done. You got a boy. Yeah? Yeah. I have a boy. Yeah. What else you want? <laughs> <laughs> you son of a bitch! Hey, man. Get the, yeah! You get Even when he's kidding and joshing with him, there's a certain fakeness, a certain menace, and you kind of know, again, his pursuit of Tuesday Weld is, is genuine, this feels more like a couple you want to succeed. Oh, 100%. They seem like they go together. And then you have this crazy scene where she just like meets a mom in an apartment doorway and is handed a baby. Yeah. And they are, they are a family. Of course, by the end of the film, Prosky goes against his word. Uh, Frank just wants to be paid after the incredible scene where they break into an unbreakable vault. And Prosky gives him something like 70 or 90,000 of what was supposed to be $850,000. Where's the rest? Don't worry about it. What is this? This is the cash part. Well, you're light. 830000 supposed to be here, and I count what? 70, 80, 90. That's because I put you into the Jacksonville, the Fort Worth, and the Davenport shopping centers with the rest. I take care of my people. You can ask these guys. Papers are at your house. It's set up as a limited partnership. A general partner is a subchapter S corporation. You, you got equity with me in that. Well, count me out. <laughs> I thought we had this good thing. That leads to the kind of wordless final 15, 20 minutes where I'm not sure why he needs to burn down all his businesses, the bar, the car lot, his apartment, his home. I don't know what. I think that's I think that's the that the idea there is like you're not going to take it away from me. I'm going to I'm going to burn it down before you take it away from me mm. and and just kind of walking away from stuff. I mean, it's the it's like uh, I think uh, uh, prison the stuff. Prison mentality. Yeah. Yeah, because I was thinking like, hey, you could keep that bar. Yeah. That's a nice little earner. Still sell those cars. You don't, you don't need to. <laughs> you you don't know. need to blow that stuff up. That's yeah. the legit side. Just like yeah. No, you know. I think he burns it all down and walks away. I think that's the that's yeah. the concept. Okay, James, let's move on to Latchkey TV. Yeah. Hello. This is our segment where we talk about television programs that were important to us as children. You've mentioned Miami Vice a couple of times. One of the many innovations that Miami Vice brought to TV, certainly American TV, I think this thing was probably more common in shows in the UK, but for an American cop show to have musical interludes was a big deal at the time. Yeah. And like real music, like like I was saying, they opened the 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 pilot of Miami Vice opens with the Rolling Stones, and so that was like a huge band. Sure. And they would they would have uh, yeah. you know Phil Collins, of course, was was in an yeah. episode there, and um, yeah. So I I wasn't I wasn't sure if Glenn Fry wrote it, but that whole cocaine cowboy thing mm-hmm. was very much in the media. So I guess they were they were kind of riffing on the same reality. The scene you mentioned, this is this is probably the most famous Miami Vice moment, which is the Phil Collins in the air tonight uh, intercut with Sonny Crockett's call to his estranged ex-wife. Just, James, feel the ennui, feel the neon, feel the Miami. Hello. Caroline. Sonny. I need to know something, Caroline. 
way we used to be together. I, I don't mean lately, but before. It was real, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. You bet it was. Sonny, what's wrong? Goosebumps, James. Do you? If you're <laughs> yeah. a thinking, feeling human being, you do. Come yeah. on, that's so fucking good. That's great. Jesus yeah. Christ. It's funny too because that's a that, that is probably midway through the life of the yes. series. In the very, I just know this because I watched this last night. But the the first in the pilot, Sonny Crockett gets a cut right in the in the exact same place as he has it there, which is. <laughs> Funny. Maybe a continuity error? Yeah. God, so good, man. Yeah, it was really good. So Miami Vice, famously, supposedly, who was it? It was the guy from NBC, the head of NBC Entertainment at the time. I think Tartikoff said two words, MTV cops. Yeah. But Michael Mann says, I don't think that's actually true. Heath says that Anthony Yurkovich had read a Miami Herald article about how the vice cops were allowed to keep the spoils of arrested drug dealers in order to perpetuate the image. And then that makes more sense. Yeah. Seeing how Michael Mann was able to take popular music, put that to these amazing scenes in television. I don't know that anybody was doing that before him. Certainly in the the better moments of Miami Vice, the musical interlude moments, there's a lot, that whole, really they play almost the whole song. And much of it is just taken up with moody, atmospheric driving shots. And that was different. Much like our next TV show is so different. Uh, I was really impressed when I watched the pilot episode of Hill Street Blues at how remarkably good it still is, despite a few weird moments, which we'll discuss. But the filming style, the handheld, that was so new at the time that we never really saw a show like that. The the jumbled kind of chaoticness of the police station was very different from other TV shows of its time. Um, this is a little of the pilot episode intro. This is like the the very first time anyone saw anything having to do with Hill Street Blues. Uh, this is what we saw. <laughs> Item 16, gang homicides. We had two last night. So they're going to be reprisals. You got anything to add to that, LaMonica? Yes, sir. It looks like the 124th Street gang done it. Oh, pure gene or genius, All right, last item. Last item is a directive from Divisional Commander Swanson. Concerning the alleged carrying of bizarre and unauthorized weapons by the officers of this precinct. Said officers are hereby warned to immediately surrender such weapons to the custody of their sergeant or face disciplinary action. Set weapons inspection starts now. All right, that's it. Let's roll. Hey, 
Let's be careful on it. Now, the weird, the weird thing in this episode, Michael Conrad's character. So Farrell is divorced and Barbara Boston plays his angry ex-wife who comes in and yells and screams. And the Michael Conrad character confesses that he, too, is divorced, but he's dating a high school girl. <laughs> well, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, I so guess that was to your point about earlier Moors perhaps being different. But I mean, Jesus, we're in like the mid 80s here. Yeah, I didn't. I 19, didn't. Oh, it's 81. It's also 81. Yeah. Well, different times. I mean, that's a long time ago. I kept waiting for there to be like some payoff where he was like, oh, no, I was just kidding. About he's like that. an old guy. too. Yeah, like, what is he like? <laughs> how old is he in that? He looks like he's, you he's, know, he's, 60. Everybody's great. Bruce White's James Sicking, Joe Spano, Torian Black. I always thought it was yeah. the coolest name oh, ever yeah. to have as an actor. Keel Martin, Charles Hayde as Renko. The thing I think what I was trying to think of what was different about Hill Street Blues. Oh, everything. I, I think that they're, you know, carrying the storylines from episode to episode, which is something I remember um, creator of The Wire talking about uh, David Simon mm-hmm. saying, like, you know, one of the things that he really loved about that was that he could he could develop these story arcs over over the whole mm-hmm. season and then even into another season. But I think that they, they definitely did that there in Hill Street Blues where they would take things. Oh, yeah. You know, they would they would have some smaller storylines that they tidy up at the end of the episode, but then you might carry something longer and longer on over the course of uh, you know a few episodes it's funny watching it now because you have such good filmmaking isn't that one little clip we played you have this chaoticness you have this jokingness this lack of seriousness but then when he mentions the gang homicides everything gets dead still yeah so they take the job seriously but they have a black humor that is represented all over the place in the show it's really impressive i I was i was surprised how well it it held up and i haven't seen it since the mid 80s and of course I mean, is there a more evocative? This is kind of like is a, that the theme from Cheers? No, it's the theme to Hill Street Blues. <laughs> this is like as this is like as emotional as the taxi yeah. theme. It's a little slowed down, isn't it? There you go. Yeah, you just gotta let Mike Post warm it up. James. Yeah, a little like sax in there. Yeah, that... man. And then you get into this like little groove. Maybe a Glockenspiel is gonna come in. I think. <laughs> Yeah. That's one of the great TV themes. It is. It's emotional. This is why I think this appealed to you. <laughs> you were probably a crier, you know? Uh, I don't think I ever cried watching that show. No? <laughs> Not even when Renko got shot in the hallway from the junkies? <laughs> I cried a little. Maybe Hill. Did Hill ever get shot? Not Renko, though. Well, who's Ranko? Is, is Hill Ranko's Ranko? the redneck. Yeah, and his partner right. is Hill. Yeah, Bobby. But they Hill, both got shot. Right? Did they, they both, both get shot? Yeah, they both got they shot. They both got shot. That was what that in the pilot episode, you have this kind of stuff, and they're jokingly, their yeah. car gets stolen, and they're jokingly going into this, this building to try and find a telephone. They can't yeah. find a working telephone. And Ranko's, of course, ranting and raving. And within a second, they surprise some junkies shooting up, and one of the junkies pulls out a gun and shoots yeah. both of them. Right. It's like Again, in 1981, you're kind of like, what the hell am I watching here? Yeah, that was a big deal. Great show. Well, James, that's all I have. Do you have anything else that you'd like to get into as relates to Thief, Michael Mann, Hill Street Blues, Miami Vice, your childhood, our lives together? No. When are we going to start to record, though? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit record now. James, thank you for coming in and thank subjecting you. yourself this is a lot of fun. to this I inquisition. This. <laughs> thank you. And I know that uh, I know everybody will be very happy to get Chris back. <laughs> Well, listen, Chris got to act. You know yeah. what I'm saying? He's like James Caan in Thief. He's got a vision. You got to pay the bills, man. 
Yeah, and of course, acting, bills. you know, is one of the more lucrative professions to ever get into. So, yeah, they make I a mean, lot of money acting. I think basically, if you're a kid today, podcasting or acting, both incredibly lucrative anything in, professions. Anything in media that can be captured digitally is um, is a sure route to is success sure route. And, yes. and money. Just avoid the Bob Proskys out there, kids. Yeah, a fast route. All right, James. Well, again, thank you so much for coming in. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you. Best of luck. Thank you. Going forward. Thank you.